Our scripture reading this morning is Esther 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree, issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the, the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king's king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Grace. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Uh, if, you, if you haven't met me, uh, my name is Andrea. I'm one of the pastors here at Village. Uh, I'm normally over at Village South. I lead the team over there. Um, but it's nice to come back now and again. I've been back like a few times recently. It's really nice. Um, so good to be here this morning. Um, keep your Bible open. Uh, Esther 4, that's where we're going to be. Um, we're in the middle. This is the very middle section of this story this morning. Um, I don't know about here. I, I've chatted to Alan as he's been 
uh, doing a good job. You can give me reviews after if you think you've been doing a good job. Or not. Um, but we've been talking about this idea, these themes that come up through this book. And in, in South, I've been using this analogy of 3D glasses. You know what 3D glasses look like? One red, one green. Right? Two different lenses. Um, but when you put, those two len- you put the glasses on, the two lenses come together and give you a full picture. Uh, so the, the two lenses of our 3D glasses that we're reading the, the story of Esther with are, th- are this. Uh, God is at work, even when he seems absent, and God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plans, right? So those are the two lenses we're reading this story with. God is at work, even when he doesn't look like he's doing anything, and he uses imperfect people. Okay, that's your spoiler alert. That's you and me, imperfect people. If you think that's not you, you're wrong. Um, You're imperfect. Um, And he uses people like you and me to accomplish his perfect plans, and today we're picking up where Alan left off last week. If you, have, if, you, if you haven't heard those first two, go back on the website and catch up because it'll just help make sense as we, we go on to finish the book in the next couple of weeks. Um, but it was a bit of a cliffhanger last week, wasn't it? The, the, the promise of death and destruction for the Jews is looming. Um, plans are in motion uh, through this guy, Haman. He's our, he's our uh, bad guy. He's our villain that we want to boo when he comes on stage. Um, he's got these plans in place to destroy all the Jews. And that means that God's plan for salvation of the world would also be stopped. Because if there's no Jewish people, then where does the Savior come from? And it seems like there's nothing that can be done to stop it. And that's where we're picking up this morning, Esther 4. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to pray for us um, because we need God's help when we read his word, don't we? Because we want to import all our meanings and we want to bring all our sin and our selfishness into it. And uh, it's like when I'm watching Avengers and I think, oh yeah, I'm Thor. (laughs) I'm not Thor. (laughs) I'm like some guy that's died in the opening scene. Um, Let's pray and ask for God's help this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we love your word, and we love that you've given it to us, and we love that it's alive and active. Um, Lord, we love that you're speaking to us this morning. Um, We we love that we can feel your presence with us this morning. Holy Spirit, you have made your home among your people. You want to speak to us. You want to encourage us. You want the weak to be strengthened. You want the lost to be saved. You want the hungry to be fed. Do that for us, your people, this morning. We're listening to you, Lord. Speak to us now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Something happens to me every now and again when I'm driving, and maybe you can tell me if this happens to you or not. Do you ever like get to somewhere and you can't remember how you got there and you're driving? Some people nodding and you're like, I don't remember the last five miles for the road, especially on the motorway. You're like, I have no idea how I got here. It happens to me sometimes if I'm going somewhere familiar, like, you know, going, going back to my mum's or something like that where you've been a thousand times. Um, it's just like you've been driving on autopilot, not paying attention to what's going on. Even though you're the one that's driving the car, you're not paying attention to what's going on. And sometimes life can happen to us like that, right? Sometimes we can get to a place in life and we're like, how on earth did I get here? I haven't been paying attention to the road. I haven't been paying attention to what I've been doing. But how did I end up here? Life has just been passing me by. And we especially tend to ask those questions when we find ourselves in situations that we didn't ask for and we didn't want. So maybe it's a job that you're in and you thought, I never thought I'd be in this job. I never thought I'd be, now it's my career, right? Do you ever, you ever watch The Office? You know, Ryan the temp and he's like, I came here for a temporary job and now he's like there for like 10 years or something. That's like what can happen in life. It just passes you by. Or, or maybe, maybe you don't want to be single. And you're like, how did I end up being single? Or maybe you're in a difficult marriage. And it's not quite as rosy and romantic as you thought it would be. 
Or maybe you even don't like parts of your own personality. You think, how did I become this person? What has happened? You've been on autopilot and life has passed you by. Well, Esther chapter 4, these two main characters, Mordecai and Esther, both find themselves in situations they don't want to be in. And particularly in the case of Esther, she's forced to make a decision about what she's going to do with the position that she finds herself in. And as we examine this chapter, this part of the story, uh, here's the, the thing I want you to take away. It'll be on the screen. God has placed you where you are because that's exactly where he needs you to be. God has placed you, okay, you, where you are because that's exactly where he needs you to be. And as we consider how this plays out in our lives and in the story that, we're going to read, or that we've read, that Grace read for us, uh, we're going to see this play out in three ways. These three positions, a position of helplessness, a position of mediation, and a position of purpose. So let's start with this first one, a position of helplessness. Well, when we left our story last week, um, Haman's plot was in motion. The king had given his stamp to it. There was money involved. This, this train had left the station. There was nothing that could be done to stop it. And when Mordecai learns of the plot, he is distraught, understandably, because he knows what it means. He knows it's the end of God's people. He knows it's the end of God's plan for salvation. And maybe he's even thinking, God, is this an end to your covenant? What is going on here? Mordecai feels the pain, and so he grieves, and he grieves in a very uh, ancient Near Eastern way to grieve. Here, here in, in Northern Ireland, we don't really grieve this way, do we? We tend to, you know, uh, dress ourselves up and, uh, you know, have a wee cup of tea around it awake. That's what we do. Not, not back then, not in the ancient Near East. He tears his clothes. He, he, instead of t- wearing his comfortable robes, he's probably a pretty wealthy guy, would have had comfortable robes. He t- tears those off and he puts on sackcloth, which is etchy and dry. And he puts ashes over himself to, to further compound his pain. It's, it's, it's a, an outward expression of his inward grief. And then he goes into the city square and, and he wheels loudly so that everyone can see and hear. He's preaching a message through his grief. And in this time of, of, of impending doom, Mordecai undoubtedly identifies with the people of God. You remember back in the beginning of the story, he is hidden his Jewishness, right? He doesn't want anyone to know who he is. And now it has gradually come out, come out. And now he's like, well, listen, I'm a Jew. And if that means I die, well, I'm still going to identify as God's people. And verse 2 of chapter 4 tells us that no one was allowed inside the king's gate while they were wearing sackcloth or dress like that. It was a kind of well-to-do place, right? You can't just go in there wearing any old thing. And so Mordecai, through identifying with God's people, has become an outsider. He used to be on the inside. Remember, he used to work in the civil service. He used to work inside the king's gate. And now he is an outsider. The people of God are under judgment from the empire. And identifying as one of them puts Mordecai under the same judgment. And all the believers across 127 provinces of of this empire, from the Himalayas to North Africa and the Mediterranean Sea, that's how big this empire is. And all the Jews do the same. They dress in sackcloth and they put ashes on themselves and they wail loudly and, and, and mourn because they're, like the hymn says, their estate is helpless. And what we, we get here is this, is this picture of the deep grief of men and women who understand that they are under judgment and in need of salvation. 
What can be done to save them? Now, you take that deep felt grief that's outwardly displayed compared with and in contrast to what's going on inside the palace. Because it seems like Esther, our heroine here, is, is living in a bubble. She is in a cocoon. She hasn't heard the news yet about Haman's evil plot. And we kind of get this glimpse that being queen of the Persian Empire doesn't actually come with that much freedom. It seems that maybe Esther, even though she's become queen, is little more than a sex object. She's cut off from the world. It reminded me of um, the, the TV show The Crown. Any Crown fans? Uh, yeah. When Diana gets engaged to Charles and she moves to the palace and she's excited about her friends, are like, you're going to live in a palace? It's amazing. And then she's kind of confined to this room. Esther doesn't have TV or internet access. She's not allowed on Twitter or Facebook. And when her servant tells her about her, her cousin Mordecai, who's really a dad to her, she's upset that he's expressing himself in this way. And, and, and for now at least, Esther responds in a very empire kind of way, doesn't she? She sends him some new clothes. And she says, clean yourself up. She says, Mordecai, it's, it's not proper for you to behave that way. Would you just clean yourself up and come back to the inside? Come back on the inside. Look, take my credit card, go, go down to the barbers, go down to you know, the tailors, get yourself sorted out. And when, you, when you're looking a bit better, just come back in. Come back to the inside. Now, isn't this a very Northern Irish way to deal with hurt and pain and grief? Even sin? Uh, you know, the kind of, there, there, don't cry. Or the, look, just come and have a cup of tea. That'll sort A cup of tea sorts everything. When I was uh, P6, so what are you in P6? 10, maybe? 9 or 10? A car ran over my foot, and my mum made me a cup of tea. <laughs> like, have a cup of, cup of tea, that'll sort you out. No, I need to go to the hospital. <laughs> um, but that's what we do. We, we say, well, at the very least, I'll, I'll make sure that I look good on the outside, you know, so that, so that no one knows what I'm struggling with on the inside. Everybody in the world knows that death is coming, right? Just like the Jews in, in ancient uh, Susa, the, like the citadel of Persia, knew that death was coming. And we all know that it's inevitable. Uh, the last year has made that pretty clear to us, hasn't it? <laughs> that it's inescapable. Even the, even the prime minister of the UK got this disease. But instead of facing up to that and thinking about what comes after death or what we can do about it or, or what this really means for us, we go shopping or, or we busy ourselves with work or entertainment. It's like we're driving along the road not even paying attention to, to what we're doing or, or what's going on around us. We're on autopilot. Outward niceness to cover inward pain. That's what we do. And now here's what I want us to grasp. Mordecai and the Jews' situation of helplessness and impending doom mirrors our position of helplessness outside of Christ. We're just like this without Jesus, aren't we? We've already sung songs about it this morning. And when faced with the coming judgment of God on those who are outside of Jesus, what do we do? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I try to make myself better. I try to, I try to work myself clean. We, we respond by trying to cover up with new clothes. Even for us as Christians, when we sin and disobey God, how do we respond? Do we confess it? No, most of the time we cover up, don't we? 
We just cover it up. We try to make ourselves look clean from the outside by maybe serving others or, 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 or giving, to the, giving to the church or, or praying a really good long prayer on the Zoom on a Monday night or encouraging someone in your MC. We try to cover it up. But I would put to us this morning that Mordecai can be a great example to us because there is a very real sense that we should grieve and mourn for our sin. That we should uh, plead to a mediator, just like Mordecai, as we're about to see, pleads to Esther to mediate on their behalf. Without Christ, we're in a position of helplessness and in need of a Savior. And so Mordecai, recognizing uh, the need for the Savior, turns to Queen Esther. And that's our second point this morning, the position of mediation. Um, I'm going to grab a wee drink. Mordecai sends his messenger uh, back to Esther, because there's a separation there, remember? Uh, Esther's in this cocoon bubble thing. She's separated from the world, and, and Mordecai's certainly on the outside now um, because of his, the way he's dressed and his, his grieving. Um, so he sends the messenger back and fills her in with all the details. He tells her everything. He actually sends her a copy of the, of the decree, Here's, here's exactly what your king, your husband, has agreed to, what Haman has, has engineered and what your king has given his authority to. And he pleads with her to step in. Now listen to what he says in, in verse 8. It says, Mordecai also gave him, that's the servant, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Notice that he uses the word, her words, her people. Will Esther recognize that the Jews are her people? Mordecai, outside the gate and all over the empire, the Jews are visible and audible in their mourning. And Mordecai here is giving Esther an invitation to identify with God's people. Now, understandably, Esther refuses. I mean, the great King Ahasuerus isn't somebody that you just walk straight up to. You have to be invited into his presence. It, it, they, they, they think that, that maybe there was around five people who were allowed in his presence. I was going to say willy-nilly, but, that, but they were always in his presence kind of thing. And, and they were probably these guys that are mentioned in chapter one of the banquet, the eunuchs, the servants, the inside guys. And they were all men. And there was no way that a woman for crying out loud, even if she was the queen, could just approach him. To approach the king is to risk your life. Because if the king doesn't hold out that golden stick, I mean, what an absurd thing. What a sense of self-importance this man have. If he doesn't hold out his golden scepter, you could be killed. Mordecai, you love me, but yet you're asking me to risk my life? Of course, Mordecai knows all this. Everyone knows that law. But Mordecai also knows that, that Esther, Esther risking her life to save her people is the only way that these people can be saved. It's what has to be done in this situation. And Esther then reveals just how hopeless the situation is. She says, well, look, the king hasn't even called for me in a month. Now, we don't have to stretch our imaginations too far to understand what's going on here, do we? 
The king has been busy using other women, countless women at his disposal, like objects in that harem. And, and, and Esther, just like any trophy, has been set on the shelf to gather dust. Look, Mordecai, to go into the king uh, normally would be risking my life, but, but especially now because he doesn't even want me anymore. I, I've lost all value to him. And in Mordecai's response to Esther, we come to the most famous passage in the whole book, and, and arguably, I think, one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. This is verses 13 and 14. You've probably heard of like youth events and stuff. It's always one of those things. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Listen to what he says to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai says, Esther, you need to face facts here. Don't think that just because you're in the king's house that you'll escape Haman's plot. I mean, you, you yourself have said that the king's already set you aside. What makes you think that he's going to show you special favor? It's a royal decree. He's been signed for your destruction. Without rescue, we will all die. But then he says something that we might not expect him to say, doesn't he? You see, he doesn't say, Esther, if you don't do this, then, then God's people are doomed. It's all over. Now, what he says is, Esther, if, if you don't do this, you're going to die and I'm going to die. Our family's going to die. But deliverance will come from another place. You see, Mordecai had grasped that, that it's not possible for the people of God to ultimately perish. Even when they're living in exile in the Persian Empire, Mordecai knows that God still loves his people. Remember what we, remember what we read and prayed together in our liturgy this morning, Isaiah 55? That's God's people in exile and God's speaking to them and saying, there is salvation for your soul. That's what he sends to them. He said, I'm still for you. I still love you. Mordecai knows that, that whom God has chosen for himself, no one can ever annihilate. Mordecai preaches the gospel to Esther. My voice went all squeaky when I said gospel. Gospel. I'm fine. Um, Mordecai preaches the gospel. God will bring salvation to his people, Esther. And when you're one of his people, you will always be safe. What does Jesus himself say to us? He says, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so Esther has to make a choice. Is she going to be part of God's covenant people and join God in his salvation plan? Or is she going to identify with the empire? You know what's interesting about Esther in this story? Uh, chapter 2, verse 7, it tells us that she actually has two names. She's the only person in the entire story that has given two names. And, and it's not uncommon for the Jews in exile. You see this in the likes of Daniel as well, where uh, they, they have a, a Hebrew name and they have a, a, an empire name. Uh, she's actually she's called Hadassah. Um, which is her Hebrew name, and she's called Esther. But it's just interesting, the author, who I think is Mordecai, don't hold me to that, but I think is Mordecai, is, is highlighting that she has these, this dual identity. And now she has to decide which identity will she embrace. You see, Mordecai knew that this all hadn't happened by chance. 
He trusted that God was behind it all. And he says, Esther, God is behind all this. And who knows, but, but maybe he has put you here for this very moment inside the palace close to the king. Esther, don't you realize that you have a part to play in God's plan? Why? Because God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plans. The fact that Esther had become queen was for a purpose. And what happens next is the turning point in this story. Because it's at this point, in my view, that Esther becomes queen. Yes, she's been queen of of Persia uh, because of her marriage to, to the king. But it's at this point that she becomes queen of the Jews through choice and decision and action, through identifying with them. She decides to identify with the Jews to risk her life to say, I am for my people, no matter what it costs me. Her reply to Mordecai is, is just frankly astonishing. She's been in the, in the king's palace for a number of years by this point. She's probably still only in her early 20s. And this young woman says, I'll do it. And if I perish, I perish. Esther embraces her God-given role and represents her people against the power and might of the empire at risk of her own life. There are 14 times in this whole book that, that Esther is called Queen Esther, and all but one of them come after this moment. You see what's going on here? God is saying, here is a queen that foreshadows our king. You see what's going on here? We all want to skip ahead like me with Thor. I want to be Thor. Um, Not Thor. We all want to skip ahead and put ourselves in the story. And in some ways, this is our story, but we are not the heroes of the story. The hero of the story here is Esther, and she is a beautiful picture of, of our ultimate hero, the Lord Jesus. Esther is the queen who foreshadows our king. Esther represents Christ in this story, the mediator that points forward to our mediator. A weak and vulnerable believer going into the place of ultimate power and judgment to plead for the deliverance of her people. How can we not be led to think about our king and mediator, Jesus, who in weakness goes into the place of judgment to secure the deliverance of his people? Esther selflessly declares, if I perish, I perish. And in those words, we hear the echo of Jesus in the garden the night before he dies saying, not my will, but yours be done. You see, just like we see in Queen Esther, our mediator, King Jesus, resigns his life for the salvation of his people. Esther bravely faced the possibility of death, but Jesus, our our better mediator, faced the certainty of death. Our Lord Jesus chose to identify with us, his people, knowing that it meant his own death and destruction. We were, we were facing death and destruction under the judgment of God. And yet, Jesus gave up his position of power and glory and authority as God to become one of us. To join the losing side. Who comes onto the pitch at halftime when the team's 5 0 down and says, I'll play for that team? Who does that? He joins us to go and plead for our salvation. Jesus faced death on your behalf. I don't know what else to preach. (laughs) And if I ever preach anything else, then you can fire me. 
This is what Jesus has done for you and done for me. We want to be Esther, but we first need to recognize that we are Mordecai and the rest of the Jews. We're not even Mordecai. We're like some, some Jew in some village in, in the middle of nowhere that has just heard word of this and is just terrified for their life and, and hoping that salvation will come. We're helpless in the face of coming death, able only to rely on the intervention of our Savior. That's what a Christian is. Some people in this room have been Christian for a long time, and you ask them, what is it? Sinners who are daily trusting in the intervention of our Savior. That's all we have. There has never lived even one follower of Jesus who has saved themselves. We're all just people who cling to the saving work of Christ. And if you aren't a Christian, I want to tell you this morning that Jesus did this for you too. And it's great news Without Jesus, you do stand under the coming judgment. That's a, that's a fact. Certain death is your only future. But by simply believing that Jesus has identified with you, has joined your team, and he has taken that judgment that was aimed at you on himself, well, then you can be saved. You can enter into a new and true life that will never end. So why not just be like Mordecai and, and recognize your helplessness and, and plead uh, with the mediator to save you? And he will. He's, he's more reliable than even this beautiful, brave Queen Esther, who I can't wait to, to meet and be in awe of someday. But even more than that, I can't wait to meet and be in awe of Jesus. And even Esther will peel into insignificance compared to him. And now I'm off on a tangent talking about heaven and all that kind of stuff. Somebody stop me. I'm out of control. Um, and after we've seen this, sorry, Esther, this picture of Christ, we can begin to see the example she sets for us. Now, I, I've intentionally uh, put this at the end, um, but I'll come back to that in a second. This is our third one, positioned for a purpose, our position of purpose. When I have those times when I drive somewhere and I can't remember how I got there, it is a wee bit scary, but I always say a quick prayer of thanks God, thank you for keeping me safe. Like, I have no idea how I did this. I got here without, you know, it's like that scene in Father Ted where they drive all night and they're asleep in the car. They wake up and still driving. Um, because the truth is that it's only God who's kept my car on the road. Even though I'm the one that's technically driving the car, God has kept my car on the road. And in some ways, this is like Esther's decision here. God has brought her through extraordinary circumstances from a lowly Jew Jewish girl to be the dignified queen of the empire. And so we talk about this idea called God's sovereignty. Everyone's, you might not be familiar with that. It's just a big word that we use um, that, that means that God is in control of absolutely everything. And it's one of the main themes in this entire book, remember? That God, God is in control even when he seems to be absent. And so even here, we see that God is in control. Esther still has to play her part in his plan to save her people. Because in his infinite wisdom, this is how God often works in the world. His sovereign plan can't ever be turned off course, okay? But he works it out through his people choosing to obey him. That's how God usually works. Obedient saints, choosing to do what he says. 
And this is something I want us to be really clear about and something we see in Esther. God's sovereignty and human agency are not competing ideas. God's sovereignty and human agency are not competing ideas. So God's sovereignty, he is in control of everything and our part to play. Not, not opposed to one another. And sometimes you hear people say something like, well, if, if God is sovereign, why should we pray? My response is usually, well, why would you pray to a God that isn't sovereign? But anyway, that's a different point. Or you might hear someone say, well, well, if God is really in control of everything and he knows he's going to be saved, then why would we share the gospel? Why would we evangelize? But this is a false dichotomy. The two things aren't pitted against each other. You see, God in his sovereignty chooses human beings like me and you to fulfill his plans. God has made it so that you sharing the gospel with your friend at work in the office is how that person will hear the good news of Jesus and come to faith in him. Do you see how this works? In other words, God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plans. Mordecai knew this, and Esther had to realize it. That yes, of course God is in control. Of course he will rescue his people. But what if his plan was to put Esther inside the palace for just this moment so that, she could, so that he could use her to rescue his people? Now we can begin to put ourselves in Esther's shoes. God is completely in control. His plans can't be turned off course. And you're misguided if you think they can. But what if he has put you where you are so he can use you to fulfill his perfect plans? Here's some questions, or one question, I guess, that we can ask to help think about this. What position have you been put in for such a time as this? Not as the Savior, but as the one who points to the Savior, right? We're not Esther in that way, but, but, but you're not the Savior, the one who points to the Savior. Here's another question. Who are the people in, in your life that you have influence over that need to hear the gospel? Now, we all have them. From, from the youngest child, if someone says that my three-year-old girl doesn't have influence on me, they're joking because she could literally get me to do anything. Um, we all have influence. Is it your work colleagues? your friends or your family members. Now think about this. What if their eternal life depended on you being willing to identify with the people of God and, and speak up on his behalf? Think about this. You might not know it, but it may be a matter of life and death for them that you share Jesus with them. You think it's random that you have the neighbors you have? I think even though we're only halfway through this book, I think we can safely conclude there are no such thing as random events. You think it's a matter of chance that you work in the office you work in? God has placed you where you are because that's exactly where he needs you to be. A friend of mine wrote a book about sharing the gospel. Uh, and in that book, he said, if, if you move into a house next door to people who aren't Christians, it's because God is working in their lives. <laughs> you see how that works? And I, I honestly think that we should be thinking more in this way. And I have to confess, I am terrible at it. 
But what if, like Esther, God has put you where you are with the people around you because in his sovereignty, he has planned that you would be the one who brings them to salvation in Jesus. And notice the first thing that Esther does. I love this. She tells Mordecai, um, she's, verse 16, she says, uh, Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, that's the capital city, and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then she's going to go to the king. Now there's two things that, that we can see in this. Firstly, that we're all in this together. And two, we need to pray. God has given us each other to be on mission together. You you don't do this alone. We share each other's burden, and together we bring the burden in prayer to God. (laughs) It's just a beautiful picture of, of I think, how God must relate to himself inside himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each mutually dependent on each other, each mutually praying to one another. Isn't this beautiful thing that we get to be part of? So that means that, that in our missional communities, we can share the gospel opportunities we have. We can talk about the people we want to know Jesus And we can pray for these people together. When you come together with your missional community, why not pray by name for the people you want to know Jesus? This is why on our prayer Zooms, we pray every single time for the lost. Why not talk about the positions you find yourself in? And share how, how scary and difficult it is. Guys, there's this guy I see every day, and, and I, I, think, I think I should share the gospel with him. I'm, I'm scared. I don't know how to bring it up. Or what if, he, what if he, he hates me? Why not support each other as brothers and sisters as we follow the example of Esther? We're not in this alone, and we need to pray. Now listen, I'm nearly done, but... I'm not going to say, I'm not going to lie that, that sometimes sharing Jesus and identifying with the people of God will involve risk. Now, for most of us in this room, that probably won't be the risk of, of losing your life like it was for Esther, but maybe a, a risk of jeopardizing the relationship or, or a risk of looking silly or being unpopular. But in these moments of risk, we need to remember the example of Queen Esther See, we like God's sovereignty when it rescues us from danger, don't we? God's sovereignty, he saved me, I'm a Christian, sweet. But what we see in Esther is that God's sovereignty has put her in a place of danger. But what does she say? She says, well, if I die, I die. You see, Esther knew that the mission was more important to her than her own comfort and security. And I imagine that she said these words, you know, she wasn't the superhero. If I perish, I perish. No, I think she said these words with that sick feeling in her stomach. You know that sick feeling when you're so nervous or, or, or with, with a shaky voice and with tears in her eyes, knowing exactly what she had to do. Even the Lord Jesus, before he dies, knowing all that lay ahead of him, all the torture, all the pain, all the suffering, the humiliation, being rejected by the Father. (laughs) He sweats drops of blood and he prays through tears. So listen, I want to say to you that sometimes, in fact, probably most of the time, faith looks like obedience 
with wobbly knees. <laughs> and that's okay. Because God goes with us and He honors our obedience. And we're able to do it because we know that the mission is more important than our comfort and our security. I imagine that you, uh, probably most of us, have times in our lives when we wonder about or maybe even resent the positions we find ourselves in. We wish we could have different circumstances. I just wish this could be different, God. Like, maybe it's a difficult work situation or a neighbor that, you know, annoys the heck out of you. Or maybe it's a marriage that hasn't turned out to be as blissful as you thought it would be. Sometimes it's, it's, it's hard enough being patient and, and loving, never mind openly sharing the gospel, isn't it? We, we need to recognize that and openly talk about that and openly say that to each other. And maybe this morning we need a Mordecai to come alongside us and, and remind us that, that, you are, that we are not here by chance but for a God-given purpose. There's this moment in... Lord of the Rings, nerd, um, <laughs> whatever. Um, uh, when uh, the, weight of, the weight of carrying the ring is, is really starting to get to Frodo. And they've really only started out in a journey and they're lost in these mines under the mountain. And Frodo says to Gandalf, I, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had ever happened. And Gandalf says... So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for us to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And I love this. There's so much truth in this. Gandalf is like Mordecai coming alongside Esther and saying, you have to decide whether or not you're going to use the circumstances you find yourself in for the greater good. So can I gently ask you this morning... What are you going to choose? If you're a believer here this morning, what are you going to choose? Are you going to recognize that God has placed you exactly where he needs you to be? Are you going to choose to identify with God's people, even if it means risk? Are you going to choose to take opportunities God has given you to share the gospel and lead people to salvation? When you hear that voice, I need to say that Jesus loves you, and you're like, oh, I can't, it makes me feel sick. And here's the thing, I really want you to hear this. No one is too small or insignificant to be used by God for the good of his kingdom. I think insecurity is often one of the main things that stops us being used by God. I don't know what to say, or I'm not very confident. How could I speak out? I don't have any answers. I don't know my Bible very well. Listen, I don't even pray that much. I'm not even a very good Christian. Well, here's what I'd say to you. Here's what Jesus says to you. If God has chosen you, which he has, and if he has raised you from death to life in Jesus, which he has, then he can certainly use you to fulfill his plans. If you believe in Jesus, then no matter your circumstances, God can use you. Before we start this series, um, some of you know Leanne Donnelly, um, she said to me about Esther, she said, no one can read Esther's story and believe they don't have a, plan, a part to play in God's plan. <laughs> I love that. And so if that's you this morning, feeling insecure, I want you to be encouraged. You're not too young. You're not too immature. You're not too unimportant. You're not in the wrong place. You're not too old. You're not past it. You're not in the wrong job. You don't have the wrong personality. 
If you're in Jesus, then you're part of God's salvation plan for the world. And the beautiful thing is, when we follow the example of Esther, we find that we're actually following the example of Jesus. Christ, who laid down his life for us. This is the beautiful way that he calls us to, even when we are weak and needy, like we feel this morning. Yes, it may mean risk and sacrifice for us now, but it's temporary, isn't it? This is the best way, following our Savior as he gently leads us through, sustaining us, protecting us, keeping us, providing for us, leading us home. We're not clawing our way through difficult circumstances to hopefully make it to the finish line at heaven someday. We just trust in the leading of our Savior, clinging on to his gospel promises. And nothing is worth more than this. God has placed you exactly where you are because that's exactly where he needs you to be. So let's think about this. What are we going to choose? Let me pray, and the band are going to come back up, and then we'll move into the communion time together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, that you're with us this morning. Father, thank you that your plans can never be turned off course. And there's no one in this room this morning who is here by chance. Uh, Father, I pray that, that you would, um, that you would uh, give us that vision of yourself, going in weakness and humility to the place of judgment to secure our salvation. Father, I pray in that, that we in turn would be emboldened and encouraged to realize that, that there are no mistakes, that you've chosen us, that you've put us where we are. Lord, I especially pray for anyone who doubts their position in your kingdom this morning. Uh, meet, meet them at the table this morning and, and reassure them of your love and your goodness and your kindness and your sacrifice for them. Father, as we come to take this meal together this morning, I pray that you would meet us in a special way. Jesus, that you would renew your covenant with us through this meal this morning. We love you, Lord. We long to follow you. We want to choose you today. We want to choose your ways. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.